What's up, Catching Up With Cub listeners? We are on a mission to make this podcast Australia's number one entrepreneurial podcast. And if you enjoy listening, you can help us do so by rating us five stars and leaving us a review. Your reviews will help other listeners find our show and it lets me know what you want to hear more of. I'm so incredibly grateful for your support. Now let's get to the show. Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today I'm catching up with Mr. Andrew Casson, the CEO of Acquisity. And trust me, this episode is crucial to hear for any business owner. Acquisity uh, is an advisory firm that specializes in helping business owners successfully sell their companies. Andrew has been in this space for over 20 years and he's one of the most knowledgeable people I've met. And we discussed three crucial topics. The first being how to value your business. So business valuations. The second being preparation for sale. The need to always be prepared to sell even if you're not planning to yet and what you need to do to do so. And finally, the sales process and things to watch out for uh, and how to plan for it. It was an episode that is jam-packed full of value. So as I said before, it's relevant to all business owners this episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Mr. Andrew. Is it Casson? Yes, Casson. Mr. Andrew Casson, I hear that you're a bit of a golfer. You've you, you you not a good one though. I read compared to some, I'm actually pretty good. Okay. Oh, you are good. <laughs> oh, you're making fun of yourself in the prep sheet. Then. <laughs> well, you always do. But yeah, I'm off uh, handicap at nine point seven at the moment. Okay. So well, see, I'm so sort of bad reasonable. that I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> it means I make I make about 10, 10 mistakes around. Okay. So, <laughs> so I don't recover from. What's around in golf? It's eighteen, it's like, 18 holes. Oh, okay. Oh, ten, only ten mistakes in eighteen holes. That's exceptional, I'd say. They're the ones that I recover from. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, and did you organised a bit of a golf day with a few members recently, didn't you? Yeah, so I'm a member of a, uh, a the Sydney Business Golf Group and um, we have events every month. See, last year I went and I thought I'd be able to do some business development there just by rocking up and, and meeting people, but that's not how it works because you're sort of stuck with your group and then everyone leaves at the end of the day. So this year I thought I'd take a group of people every time I can and so um, we had an event in February and I, I went onto the, the Cub app and searched up golfers and invited three Cub members oh, to that's come and join excellent. me. So, How yeah, happens the app? Cool. The app's just made a big difference to the, to the membership. Cool. Yeah, just that, <laughs> that access all the members have to each other now yeah. is crazy. You know, the next thing is going to be members are able to create their own events on the app. Like through the app you can create an event and you can actually post it uh, so all the members can see it onto the newsfeed and it'll obviously be in the events page. So you could create like a golf event yourself on mm. the app and members that are interested in or that want to go will RSVP and do all that. So it, it it's really good. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, but we are here today uh, because you are an, you are an expert in uh, value, uh, uh, business valuations, preparation for sale, um, and um, and the actual sale itself. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So the last 20 years or so <clears throat> I've been uh, involved in that. Um, people often say, how did you get into it? <laughs> Which is probably one of your questions as well. Um, but after 20 years in, in of doing something, it's almost irrelevant what I was doing before then, but um, we might cover that later on. So you've been doing it 20 years. Yeah. That's so. longer than... 
It's not as long as I've lived. <laughs> but I was pretty shit 20 years ago. <laughs> 10, 10, you're pretty useless. <laughs> it's, it's too long. No, I, I'm actually changing things a little bit. Um, so I'm staying with the valuation and the preparation for sale, but I'm going to move away from the actual sale transactions. I'm going to focus more on getting businesses ready for sale because that's the biggest issue in the marketplace is um, you've got sort of one in five, one in four businesses go on market. They're the one that, that actually get a, a buyer. Um, the other 75, 80% of people who go on market fail to get a buyer. So when you're relying on sale proceeds of a privately owned business to fund your retirement, there's a lot of people who have to hang on to their business for a long time. Okay, um, so you, you want to kind of close that gap instead absolutely. of one in four, make it four and four. Well, they'll never be four and four, but at least close the gap. At least three. Yeah, three and four <laughs> yeah. would be great. Um, and then help them find the best. Yeah, the best advisor to, to actually take them through the sale process. And, and so, and is and, and so, is that the reason you went away from the actual sale itself, or you you want to help businesses prepare and become more appealing to to potential buyers? Well, the appeal is critical. Um, a lot of people, when they think about preparing for sale, think about just cleaning up their financials, getting systems in place, building a management team. That's all fine to get through due diligence, but when you go on market, you're actually competing against a whole range of different assets. There's a lot of noise out there, as you know. Um, in my inbox every day, I get emails about listed securities, unlisted securities, VC opportunities, property opportunities, um, businesses for sale. And they do, you just get lost in the clutter. So businesses, in order to get the result, have to be appealing and they have to be strategically valuable to someone who's going to buy them. So it's very much like if you're taking a product to market, so you say you're building a members club. I know wild and wacky idea that would be, but first first thing you're going to do is define who is actually going to be your market. Who are you building the club for? How are they going to access the club? How much are they going to pay? How often are they going to pay? How are you going to interact with them? All that sort of stuff. So you're going to define your client. A lot of businesses when they go on market, they don't even know who's going to buy them, and they they're not tailored towards that market. Um, and you look at the private equity industry in Australia as an example, they've got $13 billion worth of dry powder at the moment. So uninvested capital, they're desperately looking for deals. There's an equally large volume of businesses out there in terms of value, but they're not, they're not investable for private equity. What if you could? Yeah. And, and, and that's what you're trying to do, make yeah. them investable for private make equity. Make them investable well, for private equity, for corporates, for, for, anything. for, for anything really, and, but and define the market. And with that uh, excess cash that's uninvested out there, whether it be the PFPE firms or not, do you think that potentially this rise in inflation is causing them to be like, shit, we need to actually invest this money? We need, is that causing that or no? Well, not so much. I mean, the, the thing with private equity and just at, in isolation, look at private equity, they raise funds. So they get money in from superannuation, from high net worth individuals, promising certain returns. And they, they raise a fund with a 10-year lifespan, for example, and they say, we're going to give you a 30% internal rate of return. So that's our deliverable on our fund. If they can't invest the, the money that they've raised and it sits in the, in the bank generating nothing, then they're not going to be able to satisfy the, the investors. Yeah, the, the investors. So they need to invest. They it. need to invest. It. They've mm -hmm. got a mandate to invest it, so they have to. Mm -hmm. So that's why you see a lot of them trying to get into, into offshore deals and uh, and, try, and trying to access whatever they can to get those returns. And so I want to get really into detail, I mean, th through the whole process from valuating a business, uh, 
that what was that? How you say valuing a business? <laughs> I knew I did something wrong there. <laughs> valuing a business, preparing it for sale, and the sales process itself. But before I do, I want to just find out a little bit more about yourself, how mm-hmm. you got into this. Um, I know you're married with kids, and yes, yeah, so I have a golf widow. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 um, yeah. Where did you start your career? Where were you born? Where are you from? I'm from Melbourne. Um, don't hold that against me. Although the people from Melbourne listening would be very thrilled. Um, I ended up living in Sydney and the current weather makes me want to go back to Melbourne again. Uh, (laughs) It's been hideous. Um, yeah, so I, I actually went to university and did a bachelor of business in organizational behavior. And when I graduated, it was the tail end of that recession we had to have. There weren't a lot of jobs around for grads and I ended up in IT recruitment, funnily enough. So you became a recruiter, a recruiter. So placing IT people and I did that for a few years and then uh, I ended up with an opportunity to go over to the States and did um, international IT recruitment. So I was bringing people in from English-speaking countries around the world into the States to work on projects there and that was a lot of fun. You know, you think a mid-20s Aussie guy in LA. Believe me, I did it. (laughs) Fun times. Um, That's actually where I learned how to play golf. Um, and that was, um, that was a great time. And then I came back just before the end of the century and um, uh, played around with a few different ideas. And I ended up meeting my wife in the January of, 20, of 2000. And, um, yeah, ended up living, uh, moving up to Sydney in that October just after the Olympics. And I've pretty much been here ever since. Was your wife from Sydney? She's from Sydney, yeah. Okay, so you, she, she brought you over. She dragged you over. <laughs> they, always, they, they say you always end up living where the wife's from. Yeah, so. yeah good. <laughs> and you've got two kids? <laughs> two kids, yeah. So one's at university now and the other one's in year 10. Mm-hmm. He's my son. And, um, yeah, I don't see much of my daughter. <laughs> she rose and she goes to Sydney Uni and the hours she puts in are just ridiculous. Really? She's yeah. very studious. Well, yeah, she trains a lot for, for rowing and then has to study and then she tries to do some work and Good on she it. comes home to eat sometimes. <laughs> Good on it. <laughs> at least she's focused at that she's age. Very that 19 years. When you're 19, sometimes you, you don't have the focus. Like no. It's always beautiful to see young people that they're kind of determined, they know what they want and they're going for something. Sometimes it's just like I'm trying to think when I was 19, I didn't really have the – I didn't yet at that point have the focus. I got the focus at like twenty one, I reckon. Right. But um, it's it's always that that's such an important part of growing up. And and so you weren't all. I mean, you've been in um, uh, sales of businesses for for twenty years, as you said. Yeah. What were you? Where were you before that? Well, I ended up when I came back from America. I ended up after a couple of different things. Ended up in management consulting. Um, funnily enough, to the recruitment industry. And. While I was doing that, one of my clients asked me to help her get ready for sale. So that was really the typical doing all the you know, systems and processes and documenting everything. And after I'd done, done that, she said, oh, can you help me sell it? And so I went to my boss and said, can we? And he said, sure, um, we know how to do that. So we did and we got a result. And I thought, well, that's, that was pretty good. I like that. I'll, I'll do more of that. So, and, and he didn't want to. And he just gave me the database and said, off you go, have fun. What a good dude, though, to, yeah. to, to do that, to say, yeah, 100%, you go do, you know, do you no, want to keep doing that? We're still good mates and I spoke, and spoke, to, spoke to him yesterday. What a legend. You know, it's, it's really cool. What is management consulting? Management consulting is, <laughs> there's so many variations of it. Um, 
and it's interesting you ask that because every time I think of that now, I think of this one guy I met once who actually said, I'm just a management consultant. I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a management consultant. Said, okay, <laughs> what do you do for your clients? Whatever they want. Um, so sometimes they're just an independent contractor with some experience who can do something. But yeah, management consultant is generally someone who's an expert in something, who's engaged by management to add some value to the business. So it could be fixing a process. It could be defining a strategy. Um, could be branding and my wife's in, strat- in brand strategy. Um, okay. I, I don't know why. I was under the impression management consulting was like when a PE firm, for example, buys a company uh, and they send in some, you know, they send in a management consulting consulting firm to, to kind of manage the company. No, they, they don't necessarily manage. The management consultants consult. They don't manage. Okay. So they could um, just be – it's a consultant of, of a sort. Yeah. That's yeah, what you're consulting to management, and that's why it's management consulting. Oh, okay. Um, but so they come in all sorts of flavors. I mean, you've got the very, very big end of town, like McKinsey's and Boston Consulting Group, and, they, and those guys, and they do a lot of research. I mean, they, a lot of what they do is research based, and they, they're very deep in, in industries. Um, but they go in there en masse to analyze businesses to the nth degree and define strategy and and, and help the business move forward. That's, and that's so what were you doing as a management consultant? We were doing uh, <laughs> <Managing> industry, <consulting. laughs> industry best practice. So we were, we, we were research-based as well. Um, and so we defined KPI, um, metrics and ratios and KPIs that applied to best practicing, best performing businesses um, and helped our clients input, um, sort of reach those benchmarks. Um, that was a big part of what we did. Uh, sometimes it was like what I did for that one client and actually just going in and helping them as a, as a resource effectively to do something they don't, didn't have the capacity to do themselves. Um, it's, it's generally outcome focused. Okay. And so you, you had a taste of helping a business sell yeah. and you realize, Oh, that's my passion. And, uh, acquisity, 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 uh, that was yep. born then 20 years ago. Yeah. And so, you know, with valuations, I mean, first of all, should every, before we even get to valuations, should I, I was talking to, uh, Mark Boris once, and he said that Kerry Packer told him that you should always have your business prepared for sale. Even if you're not thinking about selling, you should have it prepared. What's your opinion on that? Hallelujah. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not only that, you should, I, I fervently believe you should have an exit in mind from the get go. So if you're starting a business now, you should know how and when you're going to exit that business. Okay, um, but what does, okay, so two things. Yep. What does, what does prepared for sale mean? And the other thing is like, like for me, for example, I don't have any intention of selling cub uh, in the near or even late future at this point. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't know who would want to buy cub either because there's no bigger versions of cub. So, so to, to the first question, what does being prepared for a sale mean? And what does that look like for a company? Mm. And how do you, I mean, Cub might be a random example, but how does one discover who may purchase them? Okay. Well, I think it really depends on what your exit is going to be. So if you think your exit is going to be an IPO, then being prepared for sale is having all the systems and processes and all the compliance and all the people um, and all the uh, all the structures that you need to be, an IP, you know, to be an IPO candidate. So you've got to be a public company structure. You have to have a certain number of shareholders, so on and so forth. Um, that would be prepared for, for sale in that case. If your exit was going to be a management buyout, then you would prepare the business a bit differently. You'd have succession plans in place internally. You'd be grooming people to take, take over from you. You'd have 
some sort of uh, mechanism in place so that they could actually buy you out. What does management buyout mean? They just buy your shares? Yeah. So if you might start a company, you might have four key people in the business mm-hmm. and you might tap them on the shoulder after they've been with you for a few years and say, you know, I, I really think you guys should be the people who buy me out over the next five years or so. Um, and then the management steps up to become owners rather than just being management. Oh, okay. It's pretty common when businesses um, are more practices. If I look at the recruitment space, just as an example, recruitment firms that do permanent recruitment and rely on permanent placement fees, really very hard to sell them to external, to, to external buyers because permanent recruitment fees are you sell it and then you've got to go and sell it again. You know, there, there's no set and forget. You sell it once, you get your fee, and then you've got to do it again. Unlike contractors or temps or casuals where you place on hired labour and they're, they're there for one, two, three, six, 12 months and you can say with certainty that they're still going to be there next Monday and the Monday after that, earning a certain amount of money. So businesses that rely heavily on permanent revenue or, or you know, fee-for-service or sale, you know, commission on a sale um, – they generally are very difficult to sell. So you mean you, you're kind of saying non, kind of non-subscription based businesses? Non-annuity, yeah. yeah. Non-annuity businesses. Um, they will often have the best buyer be, in, be internal um, because it's very hard to sell them externally. Okay. Okay, so the, the existing people in the business are like, hey, well, we know how to run this. We, exactly. can, we can do this. And so, so you've got the IPO, you've got a management buyout, which is when your management team – Buys you, I guess, yep. and, and, and takes the company right. further. Yep. What, what, what else is there? Um, well, there's trade sales. So you can sell to direct competitors. Um, they might want to just take you out of the market. They might want to bolt you on to increase their scale, their penetration, maybe access different clients than what they currently have. Um, they could be offshore, offshore buyers. So I'm dealing... So wants to enter the Australian market. Correct. So I've got a deal happening in Japan at the moment. I've got a business here that's doing 150, 200 million in revenue. Um, buyer over in Japan is probably twice that size, but they have a lot of lazy cash on their balance sheet over there, earning nothing in their banks because they're on negative interest rates. Um, and and Japan's economy is not exactly um, booming. So they're, um, they're saying, well, we need to deploy our capital. We can we get a good return. And they've identified Australia as a very good, safe market um, and a, a good place to expand into. So Okay. Um, you can buy, go offshore, you can sell it to a financial buyer, so high net worth individual, family office. Um, and what type equity. of thing are these uh, financial buyers, what, what type of thing are they looking for? Sustainability uh, and return on investment. Okay, so One can this business survive another 10 years? Correct. And is it making money? And is it going to give me a better return than what I can get elsewhere, given the risk that I'm taking on? What, 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 what is a good return typically in that market? Well, if you think cash in the bank is earning next to nothing at the moment, and, and that's that's low risk or no risk. Um, listed equities, there is some risk attached to that, but if you can get 10% per annum, you're doing really well. That would be a good benchmark. Um, if you can get 5% in property, bricks and mortar, in terms of rental return, that's a, a return on investment. That doesn't take into, into account the capital appreciation. And so is that how they work out the valuation of the business then? Yeah, so if you're taking on more risk by buying a privately owned business, then you might say I want to get a 20% return or a 25% return. So in order to determine the value of the business, they then you know, reverse multiply that, <laughs> reverse mm. engineer that to if the business is making a million dollars after tax, 
then it's worth $4 million. If, I, if it can be sustained at that level, I'll make a 25% return on investment. And what about these crazy whack-ass valuations that happen with uh, technology? So you typically won't – do you typically work with, I guess, more traditional businesses, probably like Cub, which, which I mean, we're kind of getting into technology now, but, <laughs> but it's, uh, I guess, a more stand- – it's a bit more old school in the sense – uh, or, or I mean, do it's you, a real business. Yeah, it actually, re- makes, it money. actually makes money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or uh, do you ever play with the technology world at all? Not my space. Um, I've had a few, you know, a few feelers there, but you have people who, who specialize in that. And when <laughs> you you were going down the path of saying wacky house valuations there, um, but it's it's not really if you consider the people who pay the money for those types of, of acquisition, acquisitions are doing so because they can integrate that into what they've currently got and make more money. So, for example, if, if Facebook was to buy a piece of tech or a tech company and pay a billion dollars for it, even though it wasn't making any money, on the outside you might think that's ridiculous. Why would someone spend a billion dollars on something like that? Well, if Facebook could integrate it into what they currently got and make $5 billion out of it, it's a pretty small price to pay. Really. Yeah, yeah. And also with this technology, you just have – if it, you've got that scale effect as well. It's like yeah. Yeah, even if you made one cent of every person, but they, they've got 100 million people Correct. Uh, using it a day or whatever it may be. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just the economies of scale is just well, ridiculous. It is. You know, if I look at what, what I'm doing now with the preparing businesses for sale, it's a very one-on-one personal process. And it's quite unique for each each company. But if I was to codify that and put into some sort of tech platform so that you could open it up to a million different subscribers around the world to go through an exit planning process, um, the result might be a little bit different because it wouldn't be quite as unique and customised. But as a business, it would be a tech business, you know, and it'd be infinitely scalable because you've built the platform and it's just up to marketing then to get the subscribers in. And so why do you stay away from the technology? It's just because you know the traditional business better. That's your space. Oh, the traditional business just interests me more and I know what, what levers to pull to increase value. And I think that's really critical. Um, you just, you, you've got to stick to what, you, what you're good at. Mm. Um, people come to you because they, they want your expertise. They don't want you to learn on the job. And so you said, it, it, let's say someone wants to come buy a cub. Um, they're a financial buyer. Maybe it's a... Actually, let's say let's pretend there's a big members club overseas. They want to come. Per, they want to enter the Australian market and have a good, a good handle on on Australian business. Uh, they come in. They say, hey, Daniel, want to buy a cub, or we want to look at buying cub. Uh, you said that they're going to look for sustainability and for return on investment. I obviously know how you can show return on investment. How can you show sustainability? How can you how can you prove to them that hey, this thing will keep going ten years? Well, sustainability is about making sure the business is um, able to survive without you as the owner um, being involved on a day-to-day basis, number one, Um, that it's not overly exposed to a large concentration of revenue coming from a single source. So I often find this in smaller businesses, they'll they'll win a contract and it could be with, you know, one of the big banks or something like that and like, oh, we just won a great big contract, woo we're, we're set for life. Um, and they find out they've got 60% of their revenue now coming through that one client. Now, that's very risky when you're building, but it's risky. Um, and if they were to lose that contract, they might not have anything left. Um, they might not be covering their overheads anymore. So that would be quite detrimental for the business. Um, 
systems are, are really important as well. I mean, if, if all the IP in your business walks out the door or goes, it goes down the lift every day at five o'clock, um, then that's not very sustainable because if something happens to the person, say Alice knew something really critical about the, about the business and no one else knew about it. Um, and she does. I have to fix that problem. <laughs> something happened yeah. to her and she couldn't work anymore, then that would be a, a big issue. That would, that would cause a hole. So there's things in it, there's what I call the big rocks that you need to fix to make sure that it's got that sustainability sort of profile to it. Um, but just on Cub, I don't think it would be a financial buyer buying it. I think it would be someone who would come in and say, look at all your members. You've got a 1,000 members in this demographic with these, with these characteristics. I want that. Yeah, that that's, and, and I'm planning for that. that. That's why this new – so that's why we've got the Cub app now. Right now it's obviously just the 1,000-plus the members on the thing, mm. but we're actually launching something very exciting. We're, we're launching something much bigger. The Cub app is uh, my testing grounds. So um, – and that's that's – I really want to – I really want to have a handle on – Australian entrepreneurship and business. That's that's very much – that's who I love. That's who I like to serve. I, I admire them. If I'm going to serve someone, I'm going to serve the people I love. And and, mm. and that's what I've always thought too. Someone that's interested in Australian business, they're going to be they're yeah. going to be looking at Cub. It, it, it would probably be someone completely out of left field. I had a weird conversation. Uh, well, it could be anyone. Like it could be banks, telcos. It could be uh, uh, technology company. It could be Salesforce. Could be media. LinkedIn, media. We've mm. been approached by them. We've been approached by – a few interesting parties at some point. The Cubs, it's still it's still no, nothing. Like it's still nowhere near what 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 I want it to be anyway. So I'm I'm not even entertaining any uh, any conversations. But but that we th- so this is kind of a weird conversation to share that I had. <laughs> but well, I actually sat with uh, with Anthony and uh, Allison and Calvin the other day. It was just random. We were just in the office and and I started ranting on. And I was saying, guys, we need to prepare. We, the business needs to be uh, ready for any of us to get hit by a bus. Mm. Like, and, and we were laughing about it and kind of joking about it, but but I was being dead serious. Like, you know, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, you need something bigger than a bus to take me out. But, but <laughs> let's say I get hit by a blimp or something of that nature, a plane, uh, tomorrow, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that I do that that others don't do or, or may not be able to do, and, and vice versa with like Alice, with with Calvin, with Anthony. How do you actually go about um, making the business bulletproof in that sense? Do, is it systems? Is that is that systems and training? Well, knowledge or? capture and systems, and there's a bit of redundancy as well. So people are covering other people's jobs, um, and and that's really important as well. I mean, if you can never take a holiday from your business because it would fall apart if you were to leave. Then that's a big issue. Then it's not a business, in my opinion. It's a job. Well, it is. Yeah, but it's that that lacks sustainability at that point. Mm-hmm. So that's a very early stage. That's very early stage. That's yeah. very early. Although, stage. No, that's not not entirely true. I've seen people in forty years in business, in their business, who still can't take a holiday. Yeah, and and are still worried that if they were to go away for yeah, three months, I know they come the, back and find smouldering ashes. I know some of the richest men in the country who. Who who wouldn't leave their business for anything? And they probably could because they could afford the loss, but, <laughs> but but they you know it wouldn't work without them. Exactly. And um yeah, so so in this conversation with the team, the the thing that I bring to Cub mostly it's, it's the only uh, or it's probably the most important thing is the uh, innovation and and forward thinking in terms of strategy and and just like 
how can we make it better for members? Yep. That's the stuff that I come up with. How do you systemize the ideas and innovation? Can you do that? Or is it not that important? Can you just get it to the right level of innovation and let him cruise? Well, I think you can, you'll have to hire an innovation management consultant at that point mm. yeah. <laughs> to do that. Um, my, my program is, is a little bit uh, less specialized than one area of the business. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, we'll pull, we'll pull resources in when they're needed. Uh, like I'm, I'm not an accountant. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to be an accountant. So if someone needs tax advice, then I'll tell them to get specialist tax advice. I'm never going to give them tax advice. But you have all great co- – you've got great contacts. I mean, over 20 I've got years. Good contacts, yeah. But I also know what to look for. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it, I, I know if, if a business is, for example, going to be valued at $7 million, um, that's probably a conversation to be had about, well, how about we sell it for less than $6 million and then you can access the small business concessions for capital gains tax and you'll end up with more, more money in your pocket than if you try to sell it for $7 million. It's a oh. funny conversation to have. Yeah. Sell it for less, you end up, end, up, end up with more in your pocket. And that's because of tax uh, concessions the government yeah. has for small business. There's a bit of a grey zone between $6 and $8 million of a sale I've never price. heard of that. Yeah. Um, so if I notice that that's a possibility, I'll say, can you get that modelled? Talk to your accountant, see if that's an option for you. But I won't give them tax advice. And also makes it easier to sell. Absolutely. I did one last year actually where we had business valued at 7.4 and the, the the owner actually said, can we sell it for less than six so I can get the small business concessions? It ended up being 5.3, which was the magic number. The buyer thought they were getting an absolute bargain. He got more money in his pocket as a result and everyone was happy. Everyone was happy. It was wonderful. I wasn't as happy. I didn't make as much commission because <laughs> it was a lower sale price, but, you know, it was still it was but pretty good. But you got the job done result. for the client, which, yeah. which at the end of the day Fantastic. is the most important thing. Yeah, exactly. And and so you, you, you look at your business, you prepare it for sale, and then the sales process. Now, I've heard many a war stories about the sales process and how difficult it is and how it drags on and, and how they'll get you to one stage and you'll kind of agree and then they'll, they'll bleed you dry. They'll try to take even more from you. Well, what, what, what are some tips and tricks or, or based on your experiences? How, how do you recommend people travel through that, that journey? That, that was sort of the catalyst for writing my book a few years ago, actually. What was your, I was supposed to ask you about it. What, what is your book called? It's called On Your Terms, 101 Ways to Prepare Your Business for Sale or Succession. Um, and it's not a how-to. It's like it's not a, a, a start here and finish here sort of book, which a lot of them are. It was more – there is literally 101 tips uh, and they're organised into a series of perspectives. So you've got your personal perspective first where you, where you have to think about things from your own, you know, your own view – the buyer perspective, so understanding what the buyer wants, uh, looking looking at your business through a buyer's lens, uh, the tax perspective, the advisor perspective, so on and so forth. So there's a whole bunch of tips, there's 101 tips obviously arranged into a series of different perspectives. Um, but that was, for me, it was a bit of a brain dump of all the frustrations and all the learnings that I'd had over f- the first 15 years of doing this. Um, and I wrote that for the, sh- for the primary purpose of helping business owners actually prepare properly so that when they go to sell, they're going to get a better result. The biggest problem, and, and if you're a reader, you'll probably, you know, I've seen people who've got libraries of books and they've barely read any of them. They have them there as decoration, I think, a lot of the time. Um, books are useless unless you put them into practice. And um, a lot of people have read my book and very few, I think, have actually put it into practice. So, again, that's why I've... I've taken the next step of defining a program based on all that IP to work much more closely with individual companies to get them ready and, and make sure they get ready. 
rather than just sort of leave it up to. And how can work. people get your book to have a read? Can we? Uh, link the best it? way to do it is actually to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me your mailing address. Okay. What we'll so. do then is we'll put your LinkedIn on uh, Cubs Podcast page, which is cub.club forward slash podcast. People can go there, get to your LinkedIn, yep. and, and you'll send them a book. I send them a book. Because they're a listener. And if they're in my call group, they'll probably just be, you know. They're in your call group. They'll, they'll they should be getting free personal advice from you. <laughs> I, I mentioned that in the last call group and they said, oh, can we get a copy of that? But they want them personalised. So I, I'm supposed <laughs> to sign them all apparently. So <laughs> no, That's awesome. I love that. And, and um, so I just want to stay on this topic of preparing for sale. What, what else can you share on, on that? So you're saying that you should always be prepared for sale. Um, and that I'm assuming is a bit of a journey. It's not something you can just cl- click your fingers and, and you're ready. It's it's a it's a it's a process to, to get it there. So can it's you? It's an attitude in a lot of ways. Okay. Can you well, can you run us through that attitude and run us through certain things people should be you know certain things people should be doing like actively to to be prepared. Um, well, I think first and foremost, you should expect that every business that you deal with is going to go through a change of ownership at some stage. So whether it be Cub, whether it be, you know, the cafe down, down the street, whether it be the, uh, Any. the, the recruitment firm that you use to, to find people for you, um, chances are they're, they're going to change hands at some stage um, because there's nothing sure in life apart from, apart from death and taxes and having to sell your business at some stage, either voluntarily or involuntarily. So you're better off being, being prepared for that. Um, but as I said before, you should always have an exit plan from the get-go. That should be built in. Um, if you're ever, ever going to raise capital, in fact, I was talking to a, um, a cup member the other day. Um, he, he reached out because he wanted to raise some capital for his, um, his business. And I was saying, well, if you're going to talk to VCs, you need to know what your exit is, what your exit plan is, because they will want to know, how do I get my money back? How do I get my principal back? Um, and he's, that was completely news to him, which was really interesting because um, – it, after doing it for so long, I guess you sometimes things that are second nature to you. Well, you think it's common sense, but mm. but it's not. If someone doesn't teach you something, you just don't know. You just don't know. You don't know what you don't, yeah. don't know. And also you're not thinking like who's going to buy my business. You're thinking how much can I make this year? Or you're thinking you know, about like, I want to grow this thing, I want to solve this problem. You're thinking about saving the world at, at mm. that point in time. You're not thinking about how you're going to get out. Um, but if you ever read a good spy novel, they always talk about, you know, Spy goes into a, into a cafe and it always has an eye on where the, where the exits are. It's the same with a business owner. They should always know where the exits are mm-hmm. in case something goes wrong. And um, and how do you how do you build your exit plan? Uh, well, you engage someone like me, pay me an exorbitant amount of money, and uh, I'll build it for you. No, there is. <laughs> it's it's look. It's a, it's pretty s- simple conceptually. Um, you look at where you are now, where you want to you know, where you wanted to get get to in terms of value, and what you want to achieve during that time, and then you define your strategy as how do I get there? Uh, it's a very that's how most strategies are defined um, through that that three step process. Um, but for a lot of business owners, what, but sorry, just keep going there. So, where am I now? Where do I want to get? Where do I want to be? Yep. How am I going to get there? What is it going to look like while I'm there? So, well, I guess that's where do I want to be? Which is financials, brands. Strength, I guess, uh, market penetration. Yeah, all these types of things. Solving, all sort of how stuff. much is the business worth? when I get there and who are going to be the most interested buyers. Yeah, essentially. So that's, but that's I, I, really I think good. the question you raised, the, the big question you raised there was how much is the business worth at that point? 
that's where a lot of people come unstuck because they actually don't know how a business is valued. So they make these assessments based on false pretenses effectively. Um, and I know a lot of business owners who don't have a handle on what their business is currently worth. So they just say, well, my friend down the street sold his business for five times earnings, so therefore mine must be worth about the same because it's better. When people say five times earnings, is earnings profit or revenue? Uh, profit. Okay. But there's very, it's, it's either earnings before interest and taxes, EBIT, EBITDA, which is depreciation mm-hmm. and amortisation, or it could be net profit before tax. Okay. It's very rarely net profit after tax. And how do you value things that aren't financial? For example, um, if it was Cub, uh, you've got X uh, pro- uh, profit, um, but you also have strong brand and uh, a large database of, or let's just use Cub now currently, um, you've got eleven a database of 1,100 highly engaged business owners who trust the brand, trust, you know, yep. enjoy it and blah, blah, blah. How do you value the non-financial? So how do you say, okay, well, its profit is X, but – in addition to that profit, there's this asset and this asset, brand and database. There's some people in my network will kill me for uh, saying this, but um, it doesn't really matter unless you're getting a result out of it, unless, unless you're, you can actually see a financial return. So you can have the strongest brand in the world, but if you're not making money, it's not worth anything really. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, that's not true. Because was a great, was a great that's brand. That's not true because, for example, or I don't think that's true because, for example – if a company has a strong brand, but the management of the company aren't leveraging that brand to sell anything, for example, Cub could have um, uh, the opportunity to enter new markets of which maybe Cub's management hasn't done yet. And therefore a, per- a buyer could say, okay, this brand's quite strong. The the 1,100 people uh, in Cub, they trust it. They they, they, they love it. They're, they're supporters. And they, they'll probably buy something else from Cub as well. These morons running Cub aren't – uh, aren't doing that and therefore there's additional value there that could be there that isn't there. Correct. But the buyer will take advantage of that value. You won't as the seller. Okay. So they will value the so business. So they're on, buying it on a discount then. Exactly. They're, based, they're basing their valuation on what it's doing right now, not what it could do in the future. Um, but then and, that's different to the technology companies that you were saying before who are buying what it would be doing in the future. Well, they're only – again, that's a strategic buyer who's saying if I integrate this into what I've currently got, then I can make more money. And I'll give them a slice of that in terms of the sale price. So that's how they value that. Um, th- so there's, there's, real, look, there's really two ways of doing it. You're either looking at purely at the financials and saying, well, you've got to have strong assets, tangible or intangible, to generate a result. You've got to leverage off those assets. Um, or you look at comparable sales. So technology is an interesting one. And again, I'm not an expert in tech, so don't hold me to this. But um, there are valuation norms. And they could be multiples of revenue. They could be... Um, multiples of, of earnings with a lot of these companies in growth stage don't have, don't have a lot of earnings because they're reinvesting back in the business. And um, how are they realised then? So if a company is um, dumping a lot of the profits back into the business itself for, you know, gro- for growth, for example, when a buyer is looking at that business, are they saying, oh, wait a second, this business is a lot more profitable than it's made this year because the company's reinvested a lot of the money back? Or are they saying, hmm, it's no, it, the, even uh, they look at the profit after the reinvestment of money. Well, this is, this is where the conversations with accountants get interesting because um, for the non-accountants out there, you've got two financial statements. You've got your, your statement of earnings, your statement of financial performance and your statement of financial position, which is your balance sheet. So you've got your profit and loss in your balance sheet. If 
you're trying to minimise your income to pay less tax, you're going to put your reinvestment through on the profit and loss statement, so as expenses, as much as you can, and write them off. If you're hoping someone's going to come along and buy the business and you want to show them how you've reinvested, you're going to capitalise those investments and put them on the balance sheet. So you've got assets. So you got I assets. invested into the app, but the app is worth this and that yeah. sits on my own. So my instead mortgage. of having $200,000 worth of developer costs going through your P&L to reduce your earnings by $200,000, you put it on the balance sheet and then it's it's there as, as an asset, yes. Okay. So there's, you need you need the finance guys in there. Helping you, helping you navigate that. Yeah, it's and that's where it gets difficult because your accountant is going to advise you to minimise your tax, tax all the way through. Mm. So it really depends on where you are in the cycle. Well, you just need an accountant who specialises in pre- preparation of sale or long-term thinking or strategic. Specialised in tech companies, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so, so just back to where we were, which was um, – we're, so in five years we're going to have a profit of ten million, and therefore uh, we believe. Well, therefore uh, it would be conservative to say we would ha- have a sale price of thirty to forty million. Yeah, that's and that's that's the strategy. That's where we want to be. So that's yeah. that's the okay. Who's going to buy us, and where we're going to? We're going to we're going to sell to an offshore buyer. They're going to pay thirty million dollars for the business. In order to do that, we need to have. $6 million worth of earnings. In order to get that, we need to have 60 staff, each earning X amount. You know, it's kind of shit though, like selling only for, like if you had a profit of $10 million and you sold and you only got $30 million, you'd be like, fuck, I'd rather just keep the business for another five years and make $50 million. Well, correct. Why, why would you sell for only 30 That's the big question. Yeah. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Okay. No. I mean, but you, but you, could you just up you, your price? Say, oh, I want up, 50 up the price. Yeah, exactly. So a bit different. If you overachieve, great. You just make more money out of the sale. Mm-hmm. Um. I think it's also a, a, a mentality thing that we, I think I mentioned this before. It's an attitude um, of you're not actually creating a business, you're creating an asset. And there's a big fundamental difference between the two. If you're focused on building a business, then you're going to be in there getting your fingers into everything. You'll know everything about the business um, and you'll be all hands on deck. You'll, and you'll spend your time working on, you know, in your business. If you're building an asset, that someone's going to buy. So again, take that product development, product marketing approach again. Um, you're going to spend more of your time working on your business because you're there. You're, you're actually building something that's valuable uh, that you can then sell to a specific buyer. And and how and so how do you feel that the two mind frames differ? So how, how do you feel building a business and building an asset is a different mind frame? Well, I think the term serial entrepreneur um, is a portion to people who get the second attitude really well. They want to build an asset, sell the asset, make another asset. And then do it again. Yeah. So they're they're in the the business of building businesses to sell. Whereas other people are in the business of solving a problem for a customer. And and, and potentially also um, um, they, they... they don't want to sell it. They're, they're, you know, they're in the business of being in business. I yep. enjoy running my business. And a lot of people like that. Yeah, like Harry Triggerboff could have sold a long time ago. Dude loves running his business. Yep. You know, and, and even like Steve Jobs. Like there's a, I mean, I actually had coffee uh, with Brett Kelly from Kelly and Partners and he was telling me that the wealthiest people never sell their businesses. They hold them forever because it's the business that – continues delivering them money, which I, I thought was really cool when he said that to me. They invest the proceeds from the business to build their asset base. Yeah. So they're just purchasing different assets, I yeah. guess. 
Yeah. But it's still assets. It's still assets, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I guess it depends on what's your style of being a business owner. What are you trying to do? Yeah, what are you trying to do? Yeah, are you trying to sell and make an exit? Or are you, do you is this your lifestyle? Yeah. Do you love it? Um, uh, and then, um, um, so you've got the plan, you, you know, where you want to be in five, ten years, whatever it is, you know, what your business is going to be valued on based on the pure financials at that point in time. Um, you've got your, your estimated value. Um, and now you need the strategy to get there. That's fine. We won't talk about strategy, but you need to make it sustainable. And I just wanted to now retouch on sustainability. Yep. What are things people can do to make the business more sustainable? What are at least three things that they could do or, or start doing? Well, one thing is that the, the primary thing is to make the business less dependent on its owners. That's absolutely critical. I always hear that. Yeah. And you, and you will. And that's no brainer. Michael Gerber talked about, about that in the E-Myth years and years and years ago. That was before I even started in what I'm, what I'm doing now. So, um, yeah, that's, and, that's number one. And, and, and that's an interesting one because, like, you'll, he, you'll hear a lot of um, um, business uh, – I've heard a lot of advisors say that you should take yourself out as CEO, you know, years before you sell the business. So yep. that's what they're doing. They're basically saying, oh, I've got nothing to do with this place. I just own it. You know, like I'm not <laughs> actually doing much with it. It's someone else is running it. Like you want to come buy it? If I'm not there, it's not going to affect anything. It's basically the message you're sending. Well, I think the big thing is understanding again who's going to buy the business and why and what their expectations are going to be. So if you're, if, if you're going to sell to a competitor, they're probably going to have a management structure that can take over what you've got, which is fine. So your whole C-suite might actually find themselves without a job. Redundant. Yeah. Um, including yourself, which is which is fine. Sweet. If you want to sell to you know, a private equity firm, then you're probably going to have to stay in place for three to five years. What's that called when they give you a five year? Um, you know, when you have to stay in your business. Members have it happens to members all the time oh, where right. they sell. One member sold to a German company last year, and he has to run the business for another three years or something. Well, that's a, re- a transition period. Um, it can be an earnout, mm. which is just a dirty, dirty, dirty thing. Why is that? <laughs> oh, because. I don't know about you, but if, if you were to go to the supermarket and, and buy you know, a box of wheat bix and say, okay, I want to take this box of wheat bix away, but I'll give you a dollar now, I'll give you the other $3 next week. Only um, if I like the wheat bix. Yeah, and then they're holding you account, so they might not pay you. you, you you're at their mercy, basically. Yeah. You want to avoid that. Well, they, yeah, in that example, it's like, only if I like the wheat bix. If I don't like it, you don't get the other $3. Um, that doesn't happen. But in businesses, people think it's okay to sell 100% of their business and only get 40, 50, 60% of the money yeah, up front that. and then have to achieve other milestones um, or KPIs in order to get the rest of their money. Now, often the, the, those KPIs are set at the point where they're unachievable um, or the buyer can manipulate the P&L so to add more costs into that company's P&L so that the profit is never achievable. Um, it can be manip- manipulated yeah. in so many different ways. They can screw you, Fundam- basically. They can, they can screw you and there's a – there's a saying in, in my space that if you should only have a count on the money you get up front. Anything you get after that is a bonus. So you have to be happy with what you get up front. That's a good – I think that's a really good lesson and tip. Mm. And so uh, it, it make the business less dependent on its owner. What else? Make it less dependent on certain clients. You know, you don't okay, want to have so that cl- diversity of clients. Diversification is critical. Um, Cub's good with that. We've fucking heaps of clients. <laughs> <laughs> um, running under management is is obviously tied to the first one. That's c- critical. Um, what so did you say? So running, running under management. 
So having so a good management team good in management place that's staying. Team instructor, yeah. And they have to stay. Have to what stay. happens if management are like, nah, if Daniel leaves, I'm not into it anymore. How do you prevent that? <laughs> I don't know if you can because people who aren't, who aren't owners of the business can't be parties to the sale contract, obviously. Okay, so they don't know what's so happening. So you probably have to implement some sort of form of golden handcuffs for them where they have to stay for as long as you do. And okay. Buyers just have to take the punt at a certain point. And that's why when we talked about valuation, I said, you know, if they're looking for a 20, 25% return on investment because they're taking more risk in the acquisition compared to putting the same amount of money Buying into Google directly. stocks. Yeah. Um, so they are taking some risk there. And and that's where it lies. That's where it yeah, lies. People, people are risky. Always people, people are risky, aren't they? Oh, yeah. It's not the business, the concept. It's the motherfucking pizza. I've got to <laughs> stop swearing. It's the people. It, even as a business owner, you know, you, you, the team and the people and the clients, they're your biggest asset. But at the same time, it's like a tiger. It's like Mike Tyson and his tiger. Like he loved his tiger. It was the most beautiful tiger. It was the best pet. He loved it with all his heart. But at the same time, it could kill him. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's, 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 it's yeah, the a biggest risk funny as well dance. as being your, your biggest asset. And, you know, at the moment it's so difficult to find good people. Anybody in recruitment will tell you that. Um, or actually anybody in business will tell you how, how hard it is yeah. to find people at the moment um, that you know, so, can hamstring you, string your business as well. So we've got um, less depend on the owner, diverse, diversification of clients, so not being too much of the revenue coming from one or two clients. Good management team in place. Is there a annuity income? I don't know what annuity means. Well, it's a subscription income, like you were saying before. Okay, annuity. It's, it's going to be there next week and the week after and the week after that. Okay. Um, sell it once, get it many times. Um, and systemization. They're, you, they're your big ones. Yeah, that's um, a brilliant list. Let's see that there. And if people want to learn more as well, uh, I mean, if they're a member, they can reach out to you. But but mm. um, they can always, if they contact you, like we said, through your LinkedIn, you'll send them a book and they can have a good read of the book. Yeah. I think that um, we should even organize like a, a thing for Cub, like a, a, a Cub event where uh, we we run through like these points me and you just did for members and say, hey, guys, you need to be prepared for sale no matter what. This is how you prepare and maybe give them a bit of a structure. of Your digital conversation. Yeah, we'll do it in person even. Right, though. In person, yeah, yeah, we could even do it for the investment community or the entrepreneurs community at Cub. Um, yeah. We do have to wrap up because I know Laura was waving her fingers at me. <laughs> Um, are you a, well, you must be a reader because you've wrote a book, but uh, other than your book, is there another book that you would recommend? Um, I know there's actually an EOS guy in the in this, the, uh, the community, yeah. um, but I love Traction. Yeah, I think Traction's a Traction's great book too. Yeah. It's a great framework for business planning and, and um, focusing on the, on the right things mm. at the right time. It comes up so much in this podcast, the EOS system. Mm. I, I, I need We need to get sponsored by them. Otherwise, <laughs> I swear I'm going to start cutting them out, like <laughs> cutting out of every episode, but – but um, um, current, it is good. It members, there's a lot of members that love it. Yeah. Currently reading uh, Think Like a Monk like, uh, by Jay Shetty, which oh, cool. is really interesting as well. Cool. Yeah. I'm reading a book called uh, The Cold Start. Yeah, it's called The Cold Start. I don't know who it's by, um, but it's a brilliant book. I'm reading it just for, to learn more about technology businesses and it's basically how to start um, – a network, a, right. a network organization. Okay. Um, a really, really cool book. It's probably one of the best books I've, I've, I've ever read and I've, I've read a lot. So yeah. well, I, read, I read one called The Lean Startup and that was fantastic. Yeah, I haven't read that, but I do have that. I'll show you my library after this. <laughs> um, all right. Um, um, we do have to wrap up. Um, to our listeners, if you want to get a copy of Andrew's book, go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you can find uh, a link straight to his uh, LinkedIn there. 
Send him a message. Say you're a catching up with Cub listener, and he will. Are you sending the book for free? I'm sending the book for free, and he will send you the book for free. So <laughs> I took a lucky win with that one. <laughs> so he will send you the book for free. Um, I'm definitely. Yeah, I'll, I'll be messaging you because I, I, I really want it. Yeah, and and signed would be cool for my library. I will do that. Yeah. Um. Um. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank Pleasure. you for, um, for being a member of our community. We're we're certainly a stronger community with you with you involved. So thank you. Thank you. All right, to the listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show.